Luke 18. There's Bibles, by the way. And the chairs, if this is your first time or this is your 20th time, if you don't have a Bible at home, feel free to take one of those home with us as our gift. You don't owe us anything. It's just a gift to you. We feel like people should have the word of God, the scriptures in their home. And if you don't have it, feel free to grab one of those. But we're going to be in Luke 18, starting in verse 9, going through verse 14. All right. If I can find it. It says this. Also, he spoke this parable. This is Jesus. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, wait, where am I? It's hard with these lights. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I want you to think about this for a second because this is just part of following Christ and Scripture and Christianity that just goes totally against everything that we think of in our worldly way of thinking. And we kind of miss it because we're used to stories like this in the Bible and so on. But think about this. Why in the world is this second man justified? Even Google defines justified as being declared or made righteous in the sight of God. He was clearly a sinner. He admitted that he was a sinner. He's beating up the breast. He feels terrible. He's a sinner. The other guy, however, listed off his good deeds, right? He was doing good stuff, right? How was it the guy that lists off the good deeds was not made righteous in the sight of God, but the sinner was? Because the way we look at it in the world, if you're the person doing the good stuff, then God likes you, right? If you're the person doing the bad stuff, God doesn't like you. Remember, he's got the big beard and like the lightning bolts, like, oh, you did something. You said that word, right? That's how people think about God sometimes. A lot of people think about God like that. For thousands of years, there have been people who have thought about God like that. But this is just turning that all around. The guy who's doing the good stuff is not righteous, is not justified, but the sinner is. Because the sinner's justification is from the only place that any justification can ever come, from God's mercy. His works clearly did not justify him, right? His works were not good. He says so. He knows they're not good. He knows that he's a sinner. It was by mercy, by God's grace, that this man was justified. Mercy, which he prayed for and asked for with a repentant and broken heart. And Jesus Christ declares here that he was given it. He was given mercy. That mercy and that grace is only possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not possible any other way. Now, we could see the same thing play out today, I think. You take two guys, okay? An unbeliever who everyone would say is a pretty good guy and a serious Christ follower and ask them why they should be justified. In other words, why they should be made righteous in the sight of God. The unbeliever could say something like this. I work in a soup kitchen every Tuesday and Thursday. I have never kicked a dog, and I give 10% of my money to the Red Cross for the little children on TV. All good things. 
All good things, depending on the dog, but all good things. <laughs> and a serious Christ follower will say this, I do not deserve to be justified. I'm a sinner. I'm a man of unclean lips, of sinful thoughts, of sinful attitudes, of sinful behaviors. I have no righteousness in me, but I trust in the blood of the cross. I trust in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Any righteousness that I have is from God. My righteousness is filthy rags. And I accept and have joy in his free gift to me of grace. The unbeliever can do things that are good. And they can do them wanting to help other people. Could be the nicest guy on earth, okay? But without Jesus and his mercy, he is still a sinner in need of a savior. Those are the facts. When one stands up and says, look at me, I'm not like him. I'm not like her. Look at what I do, God. Kind of like giving God your resume, just in case you hadn't noticed, Lord. Kind of a pretty big deal, right? (laughs) That attitude suggests that you think that you can get there on your own. You're just telling God so that he's recognizing why you should be justified. The other person says, no, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because he knows he needs mercy. Now, to many people, this doesn't seem fair. The person doing all this good stuff isn't justified. The person who did a lot of bad stuff is. Let me tell you, it's not fair. It's grace. It's not fair. It's grace. If God was fair, both men would die in their sins and be separated from God. That would be fair. That's fairness. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, you earn your wages, okay? You earn them. You earn death by sinning. That's what we earn by sinning. But grace is a free gift. And God has given it to those who call on his name. The name of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Romans 3, 23 through 27 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely, By his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. Big word, propitiation, uh, means uh, the process of payment for sin and being reconciled to God, okay? Um, Next week, Lord willing, you're going to hear about the atonement and the importance of that. And if you are a Christ follower, you need to be there to understand that theological um, issue. Because if you don't, you can get deceived. But anyway, don't let me get off track here. God's the one who made the payment, okay? This is what's important, okay? What do people do throughout history? We please the gods. Here's the flowers. Here's the incense. Maybe some essential oils. I'm just saying. Whatever it is, right? Make God happy. That's not what essential oil people do. That's not their thing. We have essential oils back here. If people, don't, don't email me, please. Listen, you make God happy, right? You do the thing. You give the sacrifice. That's how you do it. That's what people think. Different in Christianity. You know who did the sacrifice? He did. Who assuaged the justice and the wrath that God has against sinfulness? You ever seen something terrible happen to somebody and you're angry? And you think, that's wrong what was done. That person's evil and they deserve to be punished. You're right. If God didn't think that way, he just wouldn't be good. He has to punish the evildoer. So the only way that the evildoer cannot experience that punishment is with a sacrifice. The problem is none of us could do it. So he did it himself. He did it himself. 
He paid the price so that we could be reconciled to him instead of us paying the price. The rest of the passage. By his blood, through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? Where is your bragging? It's excluded. Cannot happen. Nonsense. By what law? Of works? No. But the law of faith. By the law of faith. That's how we're saved. You do not understand who God is and who you are if you are asking for fairness. You and me, like the sinner Jesus Christ told us about in this passage who beats his breast, need to be asking for mercy and grace, not for fairness. Now, there's two reasons why I'm telling you this. One, the most basic, is because it's the gospel. It's the good news. You can be reconciled to God. You don't know Jesus today? I have really good news for you. You can be reconciled to God. Not because of what you did for him or that you could ever do enough for him, but because of what God did for you in Jesus Christ. The second reason is because it's easy to forget this. Listen to this verse, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Because here's the thing. When we forget this, we can fall into legalism, judgmentalism. And legalism destroys relationship and perverts the message of the gospel. This is extremely important, church. We have been in a series called White Lies. Okay, for a while, we've been walking through the lies that the culture spreads, lies that are sometimes finding their way into people who are Christians, who start to believe these things and start to get pulled away from the scriptures, from the truth, from the truth of the universe, Jesus Christ, and they get pulled into something else. So we've been dealing with those for a while. We have most recently been dealing with progressive Christians. This is not a political term. You seem to be getting that. That's good. It's not a political term. When we say progressive Christians, we're talking about people who have rejected some of the most basic truths of reality about who God is, about who we are, about what the scriptures are, about what the scriptures say, and so on and so on. They've rejected some of these things. And there are a number of people turning from the truth to follow these lies. What we need to understand is that it's not just the lies that are drawing them. Sometimes it's the way that we are acting in the church that is pushing them. There are a lot of people leaving fellowship right now. And they will as we get near the end. Praise God, I don't think it's going to be too long before Christ comes back and gets me. I'm glad because while this body is pretty good, Let that one sit for a minute. I'm looking for the redeemed one. I mean, can you imagine? Even better. So, um, you guys are laughing too much now. Okay. Um, I'm looking for it, but people are leaving. People are walking away from truth. There are a lot of reasons why people aren't connecting with the church, okay? The statistic that hit me the hardest as I was researching this sermon is this. In December of 2019, the Barna Group did a survey, okay? And this survey was of a number of people, but one of the groups was practicing Christians. Practicing Christians. And this is what they asked, okay? This is what they asked. This was December of 2019. This is pre-pandemic, whatever. 
They asked this, when was the last time you attended a Christian church service other than for a holiday service such as Christmas or Easter or for special events such as a wedding or funeral? 79% of practicing Christians replied they had been to a church service in the past week. 21% had been in the past month, okay? 100% of practicing Christians had been to church at least once in the last month at the end of 2019. It's kind of what it means to be a practicing Christian, one of those things. It's kind of one of those things about it. But here's, here's where things get a little hairy. In September of 2020, okay, a few months ago, six, nine, eight, nine months ago, um, roughly nine months later than this survey that I just read you, and six months into the coronavirus pandemic, the Barna Group did another survey. This time they asked this question of practicing Christians. During the COVID-19 pandemic, on average, how often have you attended a church worship service, either in person or digitally, okay? In person or online, how often? This time, 51% said weekly, 13% said two or three times a month, 9% said one time a month, 3% said once every two to three months, 4% said I've gone once or twice, and 19% said never. I have not been to a church service in person or online since the beginning of this thing for six months. Now remember, at the end of 2019, a mere nine months before, there was not a single practicing Christian who had not been to church at least once in the last month. And by far most of them, 79% had been the last week. Six months into the pandemic, almost one in five said they had not one time gone to church. It's pretty serious. It's a pretty serious thing. It should be pretty sobering for you to recognize that. A lot of churches, this is not true of us. Praise God. Our church, not only are people coming back and still attending those who can't be here online, but the church is growing, and I praise God for it. But there are a lot of churches who are struggling. There are a lot of churches who, after the pandemic, have found themselves at a, at a percentage of the number of people who had been faithfully attending before that. People are leaving. People are getting out of the habit, and they're not coming back. Now, we pray they will. We pray they will. But we need to understand that we have something to do here. Okay? We've seen a, a trend in this country for a while that has been heartbreaking. People leaving the church, people leaving fellowship, people leaving the body of Christ for a number of reasons. Here are some of the reasons why people may be leaving, according to some Christian bloggers and writers. Okay? I'm not endorsing these reasons or saying that this is why people are leaving. I'm just saying this is what people are thinking. Why people are leaving. Some of these may be true. Some of them may not be true. And others are actually things that we should be doing and people just don't like them, so they leave. Okay, so one, the church is focused too much on getting people in the door and not enough time discipling them. Let's get them here. Let's get them here. And my, and my question is, for what? If, you're not gonna, if we're not going to be about this, I can tell you this. Look, I've got nothing for you. Me. Okay. If it's not the scripture, don't bother. And if you ever start coming here and I don't talk about this, you can just not bother, okay? Or at least come to me and say, hey, you might want to start talking about the scripture because, well, we like you. You're not better than that, okay? But that's the problem. Get them in the door, but don't equip them. Don't equip them, right? More about kind of the skinny jeans and the, the show, whatever it is. I just It happens. It does not happen here, praise God, but it happens, okay? I'm kidding. You can wear skinny jeans. I don't care that much. Um, but, but some churches have gotten so focused on the gathering 
and they've lost track of the equipping, the discipling, right? We're to make disciples, not attenders, not attenders, okay? This isn't a show. This is, we're family. This is our family here, okay? This is not a show. All right. Two, the church has not created the kind of community that people need to thrive as Christ followers. People do not feel loved, so they leave. They don't feel connected to the body of Christ, so they leave. Listen, that's a two-way street. That's the church providing the opportunities, and that's the person responding to those opportunities. Maybe some churches aren't giving those opportunities. There are people sitting here who have probably felt that they had to go from a different church because that church was not accepting them, was not bringing them in, was not making them a part of the body of Christ, was not giving them an opportunity to serve. Number three, people have focused too much on ideology and political interest instead of theology and biblical teaching. Look, I know some of you are political. See in your Facebook, okay? <laughs> Clean that stuff up. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Clean that stuff up. But... When you come here on a Sunday morning, we're primarily talking about this. I'm not saying it has nothing to do with the rest of that, but some churches have gotten lost, super focused on ideology and not focused. Again, you're going to see a theme, not focused here. When we don't focus here, people lose interest. Once again, if it's just us, we don't have anything. If it's God, we have something to say. Four, people have focused too much on Christian feelings rather than Christian teaching. Look, be careful about teaching your kids to try to feel like the Lord is in their life or like the Lord is helping them, whatever. I'm not saying you can't feel that, okay? I feel the Lord. But you know what sometimes? Sometimes I don't. You know what I need then? What's already here, what's already here. And, it comes, and then that, that's how I get back to knowing the Lord. Sometimes you don't feel it. You remember the old footprints thing and I was carrying you, that type of thing? That's real. Okay, it might be a little cheesy these days, but it's it's a real thing. It's a powerful idea. You gotta know. If we focus on, hey, just feel it. What are you gonna do when you don't feel it? Well, I guess it wasn't real. Look, <laughs> it's real. Okay, there are a lot of things that you don't feel that are real. I'm not saying we shouldn't focus on feeling close to the Lord. It is a relationship. I'm just saying that without the scripture, without the teaching, without being solid, without knowing what you believe, it's just not going to help you, especially a young person who leaves home, goes to college. They can get all kinds of feelings. There's a lot of feelings out there. Some of them feel pretty good for a while. We can't focus on that. Number five, the church has not treated people like they are intelligent and taken their questions seriously. A lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of places treat doubts like they don't matter. Treat people like they're not smart. Let me give you another teaching. Three ways to be a more effective chiropractor. Whatever, right? Super practical. I guess if you're a chiropractor. There's probably not a sermon like that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I would hope. Maybe there's a church of chiropractors. I don't know. They need the Lord. So in any case... Don't leave. Don't leave, sir. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we got to be careful that we treat people like they're smart. God says they're made in his image and likeness. They are smart. That means we don't put everything, all the cookies on the bottom shelf. We talk about the scripture 
We explain it the best that we can so that we can all grow and learn. Some churches, apparently, according to this person, are not doing that. And this is especially going to affect kids. If you treat kids like, don't ask that question, you don't need to know. Just feel better about Jesus. And they go to college, and the first atheist pseudo-intellectual professor is like, well, have you ever thought about this? And like, no, they didn't talk to me about thinking. They didn't teach me how to think. I was in church every week for 18 years of my life. A lot of pizza parties, right? A lot of fun, a lot of good stuff, a lot of singing. But they didn't teach me how to think. They didn't treat me like I was smart. We can't do that. Number six, too much fear of the world and not enough biblical addressing of the real issues people are facing. This goes to things like, a movie comes out, and it's like, don't. Stay away from that. Stay away from it. Don't touch. Don't, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. It's all super bad. And we kind of cloister ourselves in this little thing, and we separate ourselves from the world. We build this little wall. And your kids get out. Guess what? They're going to get outside the wall. Someday, they got to go and get a job. And somebody's going to say a cuss word. <laughs> your kid's going to be like, And they're going to be like, beep, 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 because they did not get what they needed to get. we got to deal with reality. We know who we are. We don't have to be afraid of the world. We don't have to be afraid of other religions. Oh, don't talk about that. Talk about it. What do you got to say? Let's do this. Okay? All right. Don't talk about it right now. Listen to me. <laughs> Number seven, too much focus on the exclusivity of Jesus, the exclusivity of Christianity. Okay? So some people are leaving because they say they cannot deal with the fact that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. Now, I'm bummed that people leave because of that, but here's what I have to say. Deal with it. All right. It's true. I've talked about it. I've explained why, hopefully in a loving way that you can understand. A few sermons back and then probably 15 times in the last several years have I explained why there's only one way and why that's true of everything. There's only one truth for everything, okay? All right. Next, because they felt hurt by the church. People hurt people sometimes. It happens in the church too. Look for reconciliation if this has happened to you, or look for a local body of Christians that will help you heal. But do not let someone else's sin and hurting you keep you from the life Jesus Christ has for you as part of his body. That's nuts. Yes, there are bad people in the church. There are. There are sinners in the church. There are people who can harm you. We do our best as the elders of this church to look out for that and to protect people. But there are times when people say something or do something that hurts somebody. That's not Jesus who did that. That's a person who's gone off, who's gone away from what Christ has for us. Don't let that keep you from being part of the body of Christ. If you're a Christ follower, you have a, a place in the body of Christ. If you don't, maybe you're an eyeball. If you're not in the body of Christ, you're just an eyeball sitting there off to the thing. It's gross, okay? <laughs> it's much more reasonable when it's in the head, okay? You're part of the body. You need to be. Don't leave because of that. Number nine, the church's beliefs about sexuality, okay? I've dealt with this. Why we believe what the scripture says about that, why God has set up one context for sexual life. It's really good, okay? 
but it's one context. Outside of that, God says no, because he knows. I know it's hard for some people. I know it's difficult, but you got to deal with it. Number 10, judgmentalism and legalism. Judgmentalism and legalism. Now, sometimes people leave and they say these are the things. I have my doubts and they wouldn't answer me, whatever it is. But sometimes it's not because their doubts weren't answered uh, or because the church has failed them or hurt them or whatever, but because they desire to do what they want to do and live life their own way. So let's be fair. There are some people who these are just excuses for. However, however, there are some people who really have experienced these things. Okay. We all have to be vigilant about not trying to go our own way, not rejecting what the Scriptures say, because these things that the Scripture kind of comes up against us, right? It's like, I like to do this, so I can't do that. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's tough for all of us. We all have to be vigilant that we don't walk away from the truth in search of our own pleasure. That's true. But there are people who are seeking. There are people who, if we're honest, don't want to hear the truth because they don't want to live by the truth. But there are people who do want to hear the truth, and it gets mixed up with some of these other things. For those people, it's our job to teach the truth. It's our job to live the truth, to follow Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Now, all of those reasons, the one that I've heard over and over for honestly probably my whole life has been a problem for thousands of years among religious people, and that's judgmentalism and legalism. And so that's something that we can. We can't change what the Scripture says. So exclusivity... God's design for sexuality. We're not going to change what the scripture says about those. We can try not to hurt people. We can try to teach people. We can do all that. But one thing that we can do is we can stay away from judgmentalism and legalism. Okay? Now, let's define these terms so we're clear about what we're talking about. Judgment is judging people outside your jurisdiction. Or judging someone within your jurisdiction and being unloving and overly harsh in doing it. Okay. I just use another legal term. Here we go, legal talk. Jurisdiction. It's a Latin term. It's a combination of two words, speak and law, okay? Uh, juris is law, diction is speak. A person or an institution who has jurisdiction means they have the authority to speak the law or to say what the law is. If you want to see a form, a particularly harsh form of jurisdiction, watch a two-year-old with her toys, Okay? A two-year-old has jurisdiction over a toy. She gets to say, she gets to speak the law as to who can play with this toy and when and things like that, right? Because it's her toy. Now, here's the test. Have another two-year-old go over and pick up one of those toys, even one that she hasn't thought about today or since she got it, but it's hers. That other two-year-old goes up and picks up that toy, you're going to see jurisdiction <laughs> in action, right? That's what's going to happen. This little girl is going to speak the law clearly and concisely, and possibly there's going to be some corporal punishment <laughs> involved with that. You know, give me my toy back. That's my toy. Jurisdiction, okay? So we learn it early that we have a certain amount of jurisdiction and we can use it well or we can use it poorly. This also applies, I've noticed, to men in their cars and to women and their Vitamix blenders. I've noticed that. <laughs> It's just my experience. I'm sure it applies to some women in their cars and men in their Vitamix blenders. I'm just telling you my experience, okay? <laughs> jurisdiction, baby. <laughs> Come to get you. Here's the point. God has given each of us certain jurisdictions in life. 
You have, for instance, jurisdiction over your spouse. Did you know that? Husbands and wives out here, you all have a jurisdiction over each other. If you doubt me, do this test. Tell your spouse you're going to do whatever you feel like doing, and they don't have any say about anything that you do, and see how he or she reacts. I am available for counseling this week for those who try that. <laughs> Not going to work very well, I promise. You have jurisdiction over your children. It's your job to speak the law as your children. If you don't, what's going to happen? They're going to be running around in the street. They're going to be causing all kinds of trouble, become organ duck fans, or any other kind of delinquent. <laughs> Look, it starts at home, okay? <laughs> starts at home. But you have jurisdiction over your kids, right? There are many areas of life where you have jurisdiction, and there are some where you do not. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. Okay, this is what's going on in this context is Samuel's come. He's going to anoint a new king, okay? Saul has been a hot mess. Here we go. We're going to anoint a new king. So he goes to Jesse. Jesse's got all these kids. Jesse, apparently back then there was no television, so he had a lot of kids. So all these, all these boys. So he starts bringing them out. The first one comes out and it's like, oh, this has got to be the guy. He's been, kind of looked like me, you know, just a really good looking big guy, whatever. And he's like, oh, that's the guy. Um, and, and this is what God says to him, right? The Lord says to him, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see man, the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart. You cannot see the heart of another person. And so you cannot judge the heart of another person. Why? It's not your jurisdiction. It's not. You can't judge, for instance, whether someone is saved because it's God who does that work and knows the hearts of man. Now, you can see someone's fruit and go, it sure doesn't look like it, right? That can happen. But ultimately, that judgment is God's. Why? Because they belong to God or not. It's about him. It's not about you. You don't have jurisdiction. Jesus Christ is the judge. You can see it over and over in the scripture. He is the judge who will judge according to righteousness and will give grace to those who have made him Lord. Who gets grace? Those who have made him Lord. Other people don't get grace. Those who have called on his name and believed that God raised him from the dead, grace. He doesn't judge with fairness for them, but with grace. But these things are outside your jurisdiction. God will judge the wicked. He'll know the heart. Let me tell you what else is outside your jurisdiction, okay? 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, and I'm going to read the first part of 12 and first part of verse 13. And I'm doing this because this is one of those things where he says, this thing, then that thing, then this thing, then that thing. And so we're going to read one part of it, and then we're going to come back and read the whole thing. It says, I wrote to you in my epistle. That's a letter. Just a cool name for a letter. Send me an epistle. <laughs> Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. How am I going to be not around anybody who does these things? Well, not on this planet you're not going to be around people who don't do those things. So obviously, I wasn't saying that you can't keep company with them because they're everywhere. All right? For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? But those who are outside God judges. What's your jurisdiction? It ain't to those people outside. It is not your jurisdiction to judge those outside the church. The unbeliever is judged by God, not by you. 
You already know that the unbeliever is not living for God. You already know that, okay? The unbeliever is not following Christ. Jesus is not Lord of their life. They do not follow the scriptures or God's command. Commands. It's always interesting to me when someone tells me of some horrible, immoral thing that is happening out in the world. They're just like, this is the worst thing ever. And they go, can you believe they did this? And I go, yes. Of course, they're unbelievers. They're lost people. You know what lost people do? They do what lost people do. It's what they do. They act like lost people. Why would it be any different? If you needed to be away from lost people, you'd have to go outside of the world. Maybe that's what Elon Musk is doing with this whole Mars thing. I don't know. I see no other reason to go there. I, from what I can tell from the pictures, just a lot of dirt. So I'm not sure why we're spending so much money. But anyway, listen. <laughs> the people of the world are not the people of God. They're not. James 4, second part of verse 4 through verse 5. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This is about you not becoming a friend of the world. Okay? But it's clear about what's going on in the world. Those who are of the world are at enmity with God. They are rebellious against God. He's the one who's going to be judging them. The world might do that which is shocking but not surprising. And it is not for us to go out and judge the unbeliever. What are we to do? We're to be fishers of men. That's our job. We are to bring the message of forgiveness and grace. We are not the judges of the world. Jesus Christ is the only righteous judge of the world. Never forget something. You and I were once lost also. But God saved us through his grace. We were in the world. We were at enmity with God. We were rebels. And he saved us. Let's focus on preaching the gospel that they might be saved by his grace and that their hearts might be changed by God like our hearts have been changed by God. Rather than spending all our time judging them for their wickedness, that's done. They're under judgment, not yours, God's. Just like you were. So what do we want to do? See them get saved. Love them, not judge them. Remember the whole love your enemies, do good to those who spitefully use you and persecute you? What's that about? It's about loving those people because you were those people. I was those people. God will do the judging. We show them love and the love of Jesus Christ. We do the preaching of the gospel for their salvation. We do not bring them judgment. We also do not get focused and caught up in changing their behavior. I know that that's a big thing. How, how can we get them to change their behavior? Listen, if you change their behavior and you don't change their heart, you haven't done a dang thing. Okay? You haven't done the thing that they need the most. They don't need behavior modification. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. You know how behavior modification actually happens? Through a heart that's been changed. That's how it works. Do I want to see abortion be gotten rid of in this country, this holocaust that's going on? You bet I do. Desperately, I have wanted it for decades. But you know what I would love even more? If no one showed up for one. Legal, illegal, who cares? There isn't a person who would do one, and there's not a person who would get one. Because our hearts have been changed. That's what we do as the church. I'm not saying you shouldn't advocate and fight for change in those areas. That's fine. 
But don't lose your focus and get judgmental. They're already judged by God. Focus on seeing them become saved. Their hearts changing. We want to see them be a new creation, just as he has done for us. They are not our enemies. They are not our enemies, okay? The enemy is a whole different thing. Principalities, power, spirits of the air, darkness, Satan, that's our enemy, okay? That's the battle we're fighting. That's why we're putting on the full armor of God. These people are people that we love and want to see saved. We're not fighting against them. We're fighting for them to know Jesus. We want to see them be a new creation. I'm a new creation. He's begun a new work in me, a good work. And you too, if you've called on the name of Jesus as Lord and believed that God raised him from the dead. Okay, so why do we judge? Well, I think we get caught up in it. All right, how about this one? Who can you judge? Now we get to the good stuff. You ready? <laughs> Who do we judge? We judge those inside the church. People are like, wait a second, I'm inside the church. <laughs> You've got that right, Bubba. We do judge each other. This is where the second kind of judgmentalism can be a problem. Judging someone within your jurisdiction and being unloving and overly harsh. So you can, you can be judgmental by just judging those who are outside of your jurisdiction. You can also be judgmental by it is a person in your jurisdiction and you're overly harsh. You can be overly harsh to your children. You have jurisdiction, but you can be overly harsh to your children. That's judgmental. You have jurisdiction in the church to judge one another, but you can be overly harsh and unloving in that. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5 and read the other part of the passage. Okay, there you go. I wrote to you in my epistle. Epistle. It's just like the word today for some reason. Not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean the sexually immoral people of this world. Or with the covetous or extortionists or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Harsh, right? For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside, then this is the important part. Do you not judge those who are inside? It's a rhetorical question. Yes, you do. But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Paul's dealing with a guy who's literally sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is just like, eh, I don't really want to say anything. You know, they were just like us. I don't really want to say anything. They could get mad. I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want whatever. So they're sitting there, and this person in the midst of them is sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul's like, what is wrong with you? I'm judging this person from out here where I'm writing this epistle, right? I'm judging this person. You need to do the same. You are to judge those who are inside. Now, I want to be clear about a thing that's, that's really important here. This word for judge is the same word in some people's favorite verse these days, Matthew 7, 1, judge not that you be not judged. Once again, showing you that what that verse means is not what people think it means. I don't think that word means what you think it means. Okay? More ample proof that what Jesus Christ was telling us, not we can never judge anything or anyone, 
in Matthew 7. Well, that's not what he's saying. But that the judgment referred to there is about condemnation and harsh and unloving judgment. Judgmentalism. Going outside your jurisdiction or being harsh within your jurisdiction. We are called to judge each other. But this is so important. Those of you who are getting ready to start judging, I see the gavels coming out. Listen. Judgment's to be in love. Desiring to see repentance and grace and reconciliation of relationship. Not desiring anything else. Paul doesn't want to see harsh judgment. He's asking the church to use judgment for a couple reasons. To keep purity in the church. To keep the body of Christ holy. That we might be repentant. Confessing and repenting. Making ourselves right with God. Because he's faithful and just when we confess our sins to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's who we need to be as the church. So he wants the church to be pure, but he also wants to help brothers and sisters who are in sin, in a lifestyle of sin, to come to repentance. When we have to judge another person in the church, it should be in sorrow and in hope. Sorrow because we know that a person who's living in a lifestyle of sin is harming himself or harming herself. It's damaging them. How do we know? We have lots of experience. I know you people. You have lots of experience with sin. I certainly do. So we know it harms people. But we also have hope because we know that God is gracious and will chasten his sons and daughters. Why does he chasten them? He chastens them to bring them to repentance so that their sins can be removed as far as east is from west. How beautiful is it that while I was a sinner, those sins are removed from me as far as the east is from west. You couldn't have done that for me. I couldn't have done it for myself, but Christ did it for me. That's what we want to see. When we're judging the person, we're not looking to be judgmental. We're looking to draw them back to the love of Jesus, which means that our attitude should be loving. We judge in mercy and grace and hope, not in harshness, and certainly, this is important, not in an attitude of superiority. Can you believe this person did such and such? Oh, and by the way, we don't judge them to each other. That's just called gossip. That's just ugly. Vile. We don't do that. We go to them in love, pleading, exhorting, sometimes rebuking, all with a heavy heart but in hope. And here's the other thing. We judge clear and a biblical sin. Not everything you don't like. Paul lists several things here. Sexual immorality, covetousness, idolatry, being a reviler. According to gotquestions.org, a reviler is a person who uses words to damage, control, or insult someone's character or reputation. There are people like that. They're revilers. they got a problem with their tongue. They're harsh. They say things to hurt people. They're abusive. That's a reviler. Being a drunkard or an extortioner. Those are all mentioned there. Now, there are others. Any lifestyle behavior that goes against Jesus Christ's commands to us in Scripture must be judged by the church. We judge in love, looking for repentance. When repentance happens, we forgive and we forget. Matthew 18 gives us a whole model for it. Hey, someone's offended you. What do you do? You go to them privately. Hey, brother, hey, sister, here's the thing. In relationship, not drive-by judging. We have never met before, but I noticed that you uh, did this thing. 
I just want you to feel my judgment. It's <laughs> not how it works. In relationship, hey, brother, hey, sister, listen, I, I see this thing. Can you, can you give me the context and the background? What's going on here? How can I help you? I want to see you come to repentance. You know this is wrong. You know what the scriptures say. Come back to the love of the Lord. That's what, that's what it looks like. If they say no, go get a couple more people that love them. And in love, go back. Grab one of the elders. We love you. Go back and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, can you bring it back? Can you bring yourself back into relationship with Christ? Try that. Try it ten times. Eventually, if it doesn't work, then yeah. What Paul says has to happen has to happen. You deliver them outside the protection of the church so that Satan might destroy their flesh, that their soul might be saved. That's a serious thing, let me tell you. I've been in church a long time. It's only ever come to that a few times. Never at this church has it come all the way to that. Usually the first one gets it done. You come to me in love, kindness, humility, and say, David, bro, here's the deal. I'm, I'm probably going to respond to that. You come to me in harshness and superiority, I'm probably going to find a way to justify myself. But most people do come. They come back. That's what it looks like. When we judge harshly, when we judge in an unloving way, we are being judgmental. Remember that we don't have jurisdiction to judge outside of what the scriptures teach. This is where you get into trouble. That's where we get into legalism. The Pharisees could be legalists. They were pretty good at it. They would take the commands of scripture and add all kinds of things to them, making serving God about rules and not about love and relationship. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. These Pharisees and scribes, they were all caught up in these just more trivial matters of the law. They were literally tithing on their herb garden. I think that's about 10%. Some mint. Make sure I throw that. Don't bring your herbs in here, by the way. Don't need that. Green, fine, herbs, no. Okay, listen. Well, they're neglecting to do justice and mercy and faith. This is what legalism causes. A hyper-focus on the rules. The rules, the rules, the rules, until you make rules for the rules. And relationship with God and each other becomes secondary. That's what happens. Jesus tells us what the great, greatest commandments are. Listen to this. But when, the, why does this keep turning off? But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, go figure, asked him a question, testing him. That's how ridiculous lawyers are. They think they can test Jesus anyway. And saying, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you are being judgmental and legalistic, you are not following the greatest commandment. It's not happening. Can't. It can't. Loving God does not include making new commandments. If you love him and he said, this is the deal, and you go, boy, do I have something for you. We can take that rule. I can make like 50 more. 
about this one, and then I can harshly make everybody do them. That's not what he's looking for. That's not what loving God looks like. It does not include you making new commands and then being harsh and unloving to your brothers and sisters when you hold them accountable to all your rules. Every other religion on earth tends towards judgmentalism and legalism. This is extremely important because they're missing the one thing that Christianity has, grace. C.S. Lewis was asked, what's different about Christianity than all these other religions you guys are talking about? He's like, that's an easy one, grace. Because in every other religion, judgmentalism and legalism are extremely important. If you don't do the things exactly how you're supposed to do them, you'll never get there. There are people who do crazy things. Make tons of rules. There are people who do things with their body. There are people, I think, in India who will just like stand on one leg for 10 years. It's bad for you, by the way, if you were wondering. And it doesn't do anything with you for God except for him saying, hey, you should have used both those legs I gave you to do the work of the kingdom. They do crazy things, rules, legalism, to try to get themselves to God. But that's not us. We have grace. Without the grace of Jesus Christ, we would be running around trying to be good enough for God making rules and new rules and trying to follow them. We'd be offering sacrifice instead of letting the sacrifice that God made be enough for us. Yes, our reasonable sacrifice is to make our bodies living sacrifices. That's the service that we give because we've been saved, right? In other words, we do want to follow his commands. We do want to do what he's called us to do, but we're relying on his grace, not on our works. People will try to find anything to make up for the fact that they know they're broken and that they're sinful. But God is not looking for us to make our own way to him. He's come down to us. That's the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God's made a way for us where we could not make a way for ourselves. Judgmentalism, legalism, don't fit in that. God's done the work on the cross. That's the beauty of Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. It is beautiful. The difference between us and every other religion, every other way of man, is that they try to be right with God by what they could do. And we know we can be right with, by, with God by what he's done. He gave his life. It's a serious thing. And he died and he rose again. The Father gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the message for the world and for the church. Not judgmentalism. Not legalism, but the love of Jesus. It is after you have experienced his love that you will be able to follow his law, not before. It is after you've experienced his love that you'll be able to serve him with joy as he completes the work that he's begun in those of us who are saved. Now, Lord willing, next week, like I said, we're going to get into a really powerful truth in the scripture called the atonement or what some would call penal substitutionary atonement. It's going to be great. You love that kind of stuff, right? This is going to be really good, Lord willing. After that, Lord willing, I may give the second half of this message. I realized last night I wasn't going to get through all of this. So um, when I do, I may deal specifically with legalistic issues related to, among other things. You ready? Drinking, sex, cussing, smoking, clothing, dancing, movies, music, video games, long hair, rock and roll, tattoos, and pierced ears. So we may get in to a whole lot of legalism in a couple weeks. We'll see what the Lord has in store. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would grow us, be with us. God, we don't want to be legalistic. 
Please don't let us lose sight that we were saved by grace. Let us be serious about your truth. Let us hold each other accountable in love, sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron, building one another up in you. But God, let us not be looked at by the world as those who are trying to bring judgment. They already know they're judged. They know your judgment, Lord. That's why they're running around trying to find a way to be their own God so they don't have to face you. Well, it's not going to work. And as they realize that, I want them to see the church as those who are drawing them in to become your disciples, to experience your grace, your peace, your mercy. God, be with our people. Be with these people, this one in five, at least as of September, who hadn't even been to church, practicing Christians, who had all of whom had gone. And then we see this massive number of people who just haven't even come back. Lord, be with the depression that they're dealing with, the anger, the frustration. God, bring them back. Lord, I pray you'd make this local expression of your body strong with all the body parts we need, nobody missing, that we might go forward and do your work in one accord, in unison, moving forward, moving along and strengthen you, Lord, as a shield wall, protecting one another, living for one another as a family, not in some cultish way, but in the Christian way, with full love, full grace, no fear. As C.S. Lewis talks about, like an army with banners marching against the gates of hell. Those gates don't move. We move against them. That those who are in judgment might be brought into your kingdom, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your love, Father. We love you, Jesus. Be with us today. Let us take communion and remember you. In your name.